ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. A friend of Josh's uh, showed me a video Josh had uploaded on Snapchat that same night of the crash and he's in the back seat of the vehicle filming and he asked someone what speed are we doing and they replied 130 and Josh, Josh said sweet and I just think to myself if only he had said that's a bit too fast guys can we slow down if he had stood up and said that then maybe this wouldn't have happened. And I just want to encourage young people, if they're in a car that, that where dangerous activities are happening, please have the strength to speak up and say something because it might prevent something like this happening again. So that's Matthew Elms, the father of 15-year-old Hamilton crash victim Josh. He was speaking with Virginia Trioli just this morning. So how do we prevent the rising number of deaths on regional roads. Yesterday afternoon, another woman died and a teen was seriously injured and three others are in hospital and that was following a multi-vehicle crash between Nilma and Darnham. The number of regional people who die on regional roads continues to be higher than metro areas. So why? Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, joining you from ABC Wodonga, Bronwyn O'Shea. Bron, regional communities just continue to be torn apart by these terrible road deaths. Yeah, and the stats, Rochelle, are really confronting for regional areas. You know, 55% of road crash deaths happen in regional Australia. And if you look at the rate of road crash deaths per 100,000 people, in the major cities, it's 22 in regional areas, 9.6. And, you know, I've, I've lived, I've worked in regional communities all my life. The ripple effect of fatalities like these is huge. You've got, you know, schools, clubs, yeah. community groups. I think also of the first responders in those communities who often know the people involved. So that number's four times higher yeah. than in metro areas. So what do we do? Why is it different in the country? Is it attitude? Is it road conditions? Is it speed limits, boredom, lack of alternative transport options or isolation? How do we reduce deaths on regional roads? This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. The big issue is we've had, this time last year, we'd had one double fatality for, for the whole first five months. This year, we've had eight double fatalities. Um, we've had two quadruple fatalities. And of course, that terrible quintuple fatality up at Strathmore. It, it is the impact and the outcome of people's decisions, either not doing something or doing something they shouldn't be, are forever. Like this is, this is what we're seeing, that the disproportionate level of trauma, as opposed to last year, is predominantly because people are taking really high-level risk and making some really dumb decisions. That's Glenn Weir, the Assistant Commissioner for Road Police Command at Victoria Police. You're on The Conversation Hour. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, joining you from ABC Wodonga, Bronwyn O'Shea. And we're looking at why the number of road deaths on regional roads is four times higher than in the city. How do we reduce those numbers? Is it a combination of so many things, Bron? Already texts coming in on this. Higher unregulated speed limits are a major cause, says Angela. And others say not roads or education, police presence on road and consequences for breaking road rules. We need consequences. There are none and drivers have no fear, says this text. No consequences is tough, isn't it? Because I would say we've just seen absolutely heartbreaking consequences. Um, and, and that's the tragic thing here. People are losing their lives and yet nothing is improving. Um, so what do we do? Mark's in Wangaratta. Morning, Mark. Morning. What did you want to say? Well, I'm, uh, I've been driving on rural roads for 60-odd years and a, mo- a large proportion of them now are just absolute rubbish. Uh, on the 1st of uh, January, a friend I knew got killed on a motorbike because it hit a pothole. Uh, 
and some of these roads are that narrow. If you have a look at that one that killed the four kids, speed may have been a factor, but if you have a look at the photo of the car on the back of a flatbed tow truck, that tow truck is sitting in the middle of the road and there is no room either side. Country roads will always be small and windy and gravelly, though, Mark, won't they? I mean, that's just a reality. I mean, there'll be sections of highways and freeways that we can improve, but is that not just a part of living in the country? Uh, Well, the thing is, if you drive on a dirt road, modern cars, we've got those solid uh, donut tyres on them, and they're totally unsuitable for country roads. Uh, And... You can only bitumen some of them, but the thing is you can still have good dirt roads, and we haven't got either. Uh, I've got a road that goes from the Warby Ranges across to Shepparton, a back road. That's one-lane bitumen. So in the wintertime, you've got soft edges, so you've got two wheels on the uh, bitumen and two wheels on the side of the road. Now, have a look at that tow truck with that crash car on it. There's water channels going down the side of the road. If a wheel hits that water at any any sort of speed, it's going to go off the road. And it's about knowing and understanding Mm. those regional roads too, Bron, isn't it? Well, there's a road I regularly drive on and there's only enough room for one vehicle. So if you meet someone, you have to slow right down. You have to move your wheels across partly onto the the verge, onto the dirt. It's just you need to know how to to drive on those roads. Absolutely. Craig's called through. Craig's in Elwood. Hi, Craig. How are you going this morning? Good. What did you want to say? Yeah, um, I, I, I've just been writing about this. Um, I've written a book about um, my time in WA as a teenager and um, I went from um, Melbourne suburbs to a country town, a uh, wheat town in WA. Um, and so obviously the vibe was completely different. I'd gone from you know, the entertainment of a bayside suburb to the entertainment of a country town. And the reality is that speeding cars is entertainment there. That's, that's a fundamental thing that needs to be addressed it is not to, to get from a to b it is a form of entertainment just like going to the movies or something like that and people that's what they do that's what kids do yeah. for their entertainment um, and craig so i know that yeah. sorry i was just going to say i know that leanne elms the mother of of one of these crash victims you know part of the fundraising campaign that they have going is to try and start a drop-in center so that teenagers she says have something to do other than resorting to late night joy rides so picking up exactly that point you make it's yeah, a harsh you know, yeah it. so the second part to it too is peer group pressure so in in the in the book i talk about a new accident that we had with a you know, exactly the same situation five teenagers coming into town um we've been working on the farm we were going out for the night and the fellow driving approached the the bend too quickly and we did a, at least a 360 maybe a 720 and you know everything goes in slow motion but none of us said anything we all knew who was approaching the, the bend too quickly uh, but nobody said anything so it was unfashionable if you like to say something uh, that's to the, the, the and I don't know whether anything's changed, Craig. I mean, that's exactly what Josh's dad was saying today, and it's a really uncomfortable truth because, Craig, I agree. You know, I grew up in regional Victoria, and I know there was times when I got in the car that I shouldn't have got in, and dangerous behaviour was a part of it. And you don't speak up you don't feel like you should but it was actually really common practice and i think the idea of what craig called it bron is it's a form of entertainment Mm. that's really hard to hear but it's true and it's probably critical in addressing that issue if we are to see any real change yeah this text one issue is that young people will take risks we grew up we had over a thousand deaths including many of my friends cars today are much faster and feel safer there's no road patrols there's too much dependence on cameras and everyone knows where the cameras are we need more police on the road says alan and another i'm a delivery driver but not in a regional area since the end of lockdown people seem more frustrated and not respecting the basic road rules i've seen people stopping at a red light looking left and right then going across the 
intersection zigzagging in traffic. There's a really big difference in behaviour across the board. This includes bikes and pedestrians and scooters. That's from Nick. Nick, I would 100% agree and so did the, the TAC. They do, yeah. I saw the spoke, a spokesperson for the TAC said exactly that. Post-pandemic, there seems to be a, a higher level of risk-taking behaviour for some reason on roads and this idea that we are better drivers than we really are. So what needs to change? Is it a combination of education? Is it road rules? Is it more police? Is it better road conditions? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Michelle Hunt and Bronwyn O'Shea with you. I'm here in Melbourne. Bron joining you from ABC Wodonga. And we're looking at why there are four times the death on country roads than in metro areas. This text is from MJ. It says, morning, Rochelle and Bron. I grew up in the Riverina in the 70s and the 80s. There were long, straight roads paralleled irrigation channels and during my last two years of school and as friends got their driver's license we witnessed carnage day after day i could visit the local cemetery and count at least half a dozen teenagers who had their lives cut short due to road incidents in my last year of school which invariably was caused by speeding inexperience and long narrow roads john kaiser is one of the co-founders of fit to drive he's also a former principal in the mornington peninsula john MJ just was talking about the 70s and the 80s and I know that you've been doing work in campaigning on this for decades as well. Has anything changed, do you think? (laughs) Yeah, things have changed. Um, I think uh, our vehicles are certainly a lot better than what they used to be. Um, Enforcement, uh, whilst many people might question that, I think uh, there are different strategies and that's improving. But the, there's a document I'd like to reference. The Victorian Road Safety Strategy um, is actually a very solid document and it addresses all of those areas. But there's one area in particular that, that I um, feel very strongly about, and that's the area of people and behaviours. Uh, Josh's father referenced that in, in the comments he made earlier. If only Josh had said something. Mm. The work of the foundation in educating young people in schools is all about giving them strategies to to respond to situations where they feel uncomfortable, where they think there is a risk. Um, So it's that aspect, I think, of building a culture of road safety in Victoria that is underdone. I don't think there's enough um, work done in Victoria on that. Well, the foundation is trying very hard to get into more and more schools and to educate more and more young people. and Well, not educate them, but get them to think about what sort of options they've got, what sorts of behaviours are reasonable, what are unreasonable, the impact of what they do on other people, um, how other people's behaviours might affect them. All of those things need to be discussed with young people so that they're front of mind at least for a short period of time and then have the, op- have the chance of influencing potential behaviours in the future. Because, John, that's key, isn't it? Because as we heard um, Josh's father say, you know, they'd even had conversations only days before about unsafe behaviour. And yet in that moment, as that Snapchat vision confirmed, in that moment, for whatever reason, he didn't have the strength or or wasn't feeling comfortable to say, this is too fast, this isn't safe. How do we make sure that in that moment that those safe decisions are being made by, by kids who are at that tricky age, aren't they, John? That 14, 15 years old, it's a, it's a tricky time across education anyway. It, it is, and I think one of the ways is to get those young people to talk about these sorts of issues with their peers. Talking to mum and dad and, and to an adult, um, kids listen, but they don't necessarily hear. Um, mm. I think uh, conversations with their peers that are guided by um, people a little older, um, as the foundation tries to do, um, I think that's the way to get to it. Can I tell you a brief story of, of an experience I had as a principal? Um, I, one year I was interviewed by the ABC on the steps of my school after a death uh, in the community. But there's a backstory to it. The young fellow who um, was driving the car picked up a friend and um, they went for a drive and then they picked up another friend. They were driving through the local community, um, travelling very quickly, and the first friend he picked up said to him, I don't think this is safe. I want to get out. So he got out. The other friend who got in second climbed into the front seat and passenger seat, drove down the road, and um, he lost his life shortly after. Choices. Young people have to be informed or have to have the opportunity to talk about the choices they can make and the impact those choices have on other people. But they need to have those conversations with their peers. Um, Schools are the ideal places to do that. 
if every school in Victoria, I think, engaged with the foundation in having those conversations, I think we could have an impact. It's not going to stop all those uh, those crashes, but it will help. And the impacts are lifelong. I mean, John... I know that you lost two brothers to road accident deaths. You've been the, the principal and have seen students die as a road as a result of road accident deaths. And when you see this continue to happen, it must it must bring up some awful memories for you and that's something that continues to stay with you and your family and your community. It does, and it does with uh, every family or every individual that's ever experienced uh, road trauma. Um, and it's not just the deaths, uh, by the way, Rochelle, um, the, the injuries. I think if you've got had a look at the statistics yeah. on injuries and the, the lifelong impact they have, the, the injuries uh, statistics are phenomenal too. They're, they're terrible. Uh, it's another aspect of that, that whole issue. John, thank you so much for speaking and for the work that you do as well. It's really important. Thank you very much for your time, Michelle. Good on you. That's John Kaiser there. He's one of the founders of Fit to Drive. He's also a former principal uh, down in the Mornington Peninsula. Debbie has called from Stall. Good morning, Debbie. Good morning. What did you want to say? Um, I've lost two children in road crashes in rural Queensland, regional Queensland. Oh, Debbie. Um, the first crash was my only daughter. She was six days off being 18 when she died. And it was just a, she was driving a little laser, you know, front-wheel drive vehicle. And there were witnesses, eyewitnesses, so this is how I know what happened. Um, And her car moved for some reason and hit the gravel on a major highway between Maryborough and Childers. And her car ran across the, her car went, she lost control, ran across, hit the cutting, flipped upside down and ran into the path of three oncoming vehicles on its lid. My granddaughter was in that car. And her passenger was ripped out of the car and killed instantly. My granddaughter survived after quite some weeks in um, ICU. She was 10 months old, so she will never remember her mum. She's almost 30 years old now. 10 years later, um, my husband and I lost a son. His son was killed three kilometres from home in a car crash. And he had three of the fatal four in action. He was three times the legal limit. He was speeding and he had no seatbelt on. So we lost them both, the eldest and the youngest at the other end. I travel between Victoria and Queensland. I'm a nurse, so I travel a 24-foot caravan. I see some crazy stuff on the highways, let alone the country roads. And I watch that um, news. I try not to these days, but I watch the news and I saw those young people on the road towards Nagreta Falls, and my heart just sank to the bottom of my shoes for their parents, for their mum, especially because I'm a mum. So I feel for them. And I know the speed limit says 100. I know what it says sometimes, but is it safe? These are all the things that when you're young, you don't think about and you think you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. But the impact of what's happened is leaving all these families and friends totally devastated for parents will suffer for a lifetime. I do. I still feel it. I became a nurse for that reason, to help others. Um, And... You know, we still feel it from our children. I go to Queensland once a year. I go to their graves. I put flowers on. I polish their graves. I say hello to them. I have lunch with them. I do all that crazy stuff. I know it sounds crazy to a lot of people. Not at all. But we're parents. All I want is to see, I see a lot of impatience on the road of every age group. All I want to say to people is please drive with your lights on on country roads. Sometimes the colour of your car affects who can see what. We don't all have 20-20 vision. I wear glasses and I've seen cars that I didn't realise were coming at me because they blend with the colour of the road. Mm. So impatience is a big thing that I see people just want to get past at all costs. And so they take some crazy risks out there. And we have to, I spent a long time, a lot of years going into schools at my cost and I have a little DVD that I use. And I always thought if I can just change one of these kids' um, mindset, just change one mindset and say, this is what's happened to me. I'm a mum. I could be a mum or grandma to any of you kids sitting here. And this is what's happened to me. And I show a video of that car crash that killed my daughter that day. And it's not gory. It just shows what it looks like when a major accident happens on a highway and you've got ambulance and fire and doctors on a major highway. That's all it shows. It shows the busyness of it. 
And it has changed some of those kids' lives. And I always feel if I can just change one person's perspective on how they drive, then at least we can maybe cut wow. down some of these car crashes. Oh, Debbie, so I'm sure what, you have. I'm sure you have. You know, that is incredible. I mean, the lifelong pain that you have, you know, as a result. Of, uh, and, and the fact that you have the strength, this is what always amazes me because like John as well, you become advocates almost instantly, don't yeah, you, to try and absolutely. help other people. So in order to be that advocate, you're reliving that pain as well, yeah. but hopefully well, saving lives please, as a result. Please remember, please remember that I was 33 years old when I buried my daughter who was almost 18. I was 43 years old when I helped my husband bury his son. My husband used to go down and lay beside his grave every day. Oh, my God. So this is the impact that these kids don't think about is, mm. you know, if I do this, what, what are my parents going to feel? Yeah. How are my parents going to feel? And it's they about... Mean, thinking about those sort of things. It's the parents are left behind. Their suffering is over, but we're still here. We're still here. Oh, Debbie, we just thank you so much for sharing your story and we just send you so much love and virtual hugs and it's about how do we get those kids to think about that in that moment, don't we? Like Debbie mm. just said, Bron, to say, what? how are my parents going to be feel if anything ever happens to me? How do we give them that education and that strength to make the decision at the right time, not in the aftermath where they think, God, that could have been really bad. Imagine if this happened. But to have the strength, like when John Kaiser said, that one kid said, stop the car. I don't feel safe. I want to get out. Yeah. How do we give them that strength? That interesting point that Debbie and others have raised about speed limits too, Rochelle, and I think sometimes there's a sense that whatever the speed limit is, you you have to go that fast. That's the speed you have to drive. And I think we forget that we are in control. The speed limit is in, in control. And if you don't feel a road is safe or the conditions have changed or whatever it might be, you don't have to go that fast. You drive for the safety of, of that road and for, for your own safety and those in, in the car with you. Um, it's a big problem, I think. So many texts on this. We'll try and get through as many as we can. Rish and Bron, I drive all the time in regional Victoria. I do about a 1,000 k's plus per week. I have destroyed four wheels on my work ute in the past 12 months just due to hitting potholes. It's only luck and 20 years experience that has stopped me from accidents, says AJ. And another says, drive to the conditions, that's the key. People are unable to do this, and until they are, we can blame everything and look for reasons forever. Rish and Bron, I've been driving for 53 years, and I've never seen our rural roads in such a dangerous state as they are now. Regardless of whether speed was involved in this latest collision, our rural roads are killers. The government continues to spend money on all other roads in Melbourne, but not here, and that is from Chris. Associate Professor Michael Fitzharris is from Monash University Accident Research Centre. Michael, you have been looking for a long time into the reasons as to why more deaths occur on regional roads. It seems like there's a lot of factors at play here. What are some of the major reasons that you think are causing four times the amount of deaths in regional areas? Morning, Rochelle, and uh, I just say, um, and we extend our heartfelt condolences to to those involved in all of the, the recent fatality and serious injury crashes in Victoria. Each is um, a really important person in our community, and and the loss is profound, and the grief is um, can last for a very long time. We've been looking at um, a whole range of things. We we did a study funded by the Transport Accident Commission where we looked at just under four hundred serious injury crashes, people who admitted to the Alford and the Royal Melbourne. And one of the key things with rural crashes is the margins are very small and the risk so the risk equation is is a lot higher for a range of reasons. And it's just sort of how we conceptualise what we we think of a road as a safe road transport system. Um, and we think of a safe driver, a safe vehicle and a and, and a safe road. And that requires things around compliance and and the safety of the car that it offers itself and, and, and what we think of a safe road. And we almost need to challenge the view that a, a good road is simply a fast road because in in, in the regions we see that the, the proportions of people being killed and seriously injured, particularly those killed, uh, is a lot higher just simply as a function of speed and the underlying risk of the road. And that presents as a range of challenges across all of these mm. 
elements. I know there's um, a section of, of freeway, it actually, is where the, the speed limit was dropped from 110 on the Hume, near where I live, to 80, Michael. And sort of the, the outrage, you know, that people had about the speed limit dropping. And not only that, I, I drive that that stretch of road so often and I reckon eight out of ten vehicles would completely disregard that new limit. And yeah. I shake my head and I think, why? Yeah. What? You know, and whenever it, it strikes me that whenever we talk about dropping speed limits, there seems to be such a backlash about it. Michael, I, I wonder why. And do you think we need to completely rethink the speed limits that we have on regional roads? Yeah, absolutely. There's a few elements here. Our research clearly demonstrated that exceeding the speed limit increases your risk of being in a crash. But once you're in a crash, that higher impact speed, the vehicles just simply cannot manage that type of impact, even some of the best cars at the speeds and crashes that we were seeing. So it's around the, the level of energy. If if we were to think back and say, how would we design our road transport system today? It wouldn't look like what we have. We wouldn't be separating cars with a white painted line that's 10 centimetres and think that that's acceptable. It's What we need to think about is our road hierarchy and its function. So you can have 100 on somewhere like the Hume or 110 because it has safe road infrastructure. Um, there are other many, many local roads, B and C class roads that are in the regions that simply cannot sustain these higher limits because when things go wrong, the consequences are, are, are terrible, they're disastrous and the vehicles, even our best ones, cannot sustain these type of forces. It's, it's unfortunately so predictable that we know that runoff road, head-on crashes and four-way intersections, they're our, our three key problem areas. And when we try and have a conversation about speed, people say, well, you know, there is community outrage and it's the bipartisanship that we need to have higher speed limits on really good quality roads. But the speed limit is seen as a target by many. And yes, some people will continue to exceed that speed limit. But what we do by reducing it, we knock down the top end. So 110 might become 90 in an 80 zone. It starts to become much more survivable. But it's about having a conversation with a bipartisan conversation at that level, but also with the community to say the road function becomes really important and we need to look around at the road. A good road is not necessarily a fast road, far from it. There's lots of conversation around education. Here's just two of the almost hundreds of texts that have come in. This, I think advanced driving courses are excellent for young drivers. It's fun and it's so informative. You're in a controlled and safe environment. It's really an important topic. That's Elizabeth from Sangston uh, Frankston South. And then this, it says, I'm really listening, but I'm over 70. I have grandsons and they're not listening to this. We know that they don't listen. We can't get this into their heads. They don't hear. If they do, they think it won't happen to them. So there's mm. education, there's talking about it, but then what works, what gets through and... Oh gosh, I feel like whenever we have these big chats, it's like we need more education. But what does that actually really yeah. mean? And Michael, it strikes me that um, you know our first experiences as country kids learning to drive. Sometimes it's on the farm. It was for me, you know, really safe, low speeds. You know, mum and dad right there. Um, for other kids, it, it might be on a on a more urban environment in a country town. I think back to my driving lessons. They weren't out on remote rough roads they were you know in town where you learnt to reverse park i wonder is is part of the um way forward to actually give kids a more realistic experience of what rural driving is and even if that's a simulator that shows them what it's like to hit the gravel and spin you know like, do we actually need to give them a greater sense of the reality before we expect them to be okay behind the wheel yeah, I think um, that, that sort of educational element, that driver experience is really important. One of my close friends, when he got his licence, there was one set of traffic lights in Warrigal um, and I remember driving on the corrugations on the way to their, their property and you drive in the ute very differently to that because you know mm. the back end is going to sort of drop out. You learn to drive to those conditions and I think 
One of the key things is that the graduated licensing scheme has been really important, but what we perhaps can look at are things like different road surface conditions, um, and we can actually have that sort of educational element about requirements around night driving, which we do, but also driving in the rain and so on. So those elements becoming sort of really important. But when kids get in the car, we've had driver inexperience as being uh, a factor for a very long time. And some people would argue that driver education or driver training doesn't necessarily answer all of the questions, but it certainly can be a component of having kids understand risk. And there was a, a year 12 student at my school that was killed. And I still remember his name and his brother and, and it, it shapes your behaviour um, and it stays with you for a really long time. But the getting in the car, making that potentially um, split-second fatal decision about whether you overtake on a crest in a country area or a rise or so on, these are things that come through time. But, you know, sensation-seeking and impulsive behaviours are something we grow out of, but we can also introduce kids to understand and also for people the general degradation of driving standards and complete lack of road craft almost stop signs are almost become optional and yeah. it's just not acceptable. we're seeing it more and more aren't we and i mean i did a show not too long ago just on road rage and why there seems to be such aggression on the roads and the consequences that happen from that as a result as well and michael you're so right. If it's something that you've experienced, it stays with you forever. And I mean, there are texts coming in like this, for example, 100% agreed. My sister and her boyfriend died on a rural road. You have to fix the roads. We heard from Debbie, the amount of people who lose loved ones, whether it be their own children, their own siblings or someone within their own school environment, it affects all of us. Michael, you do incredible work. Keep that fight up. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Associate Professor Michael Fitzharris is from Monash University's The Accident Research Centre. So many texts on this. We'll try and get through as many of them as we can. So what can we do to improve the state of deaths on our country roads? Is it attitude? Is it road conditions, speed limits, boredom or lack of alternative transport options? How do we reduce those awful numbers? This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Josh was showing me footage of of a friend of his doing donuts and he was in the car and things like that. And I, I used two examples of people I know who have made wrong choices in the past and it's impacted the rest of their life. They've ended up in a wheelchair or two of them have, have ended up in a wheelchair because of, of um, erratic behaviour and not speaking up. Shared that with him on, on Thursday as I dropped him off to school and he said, oh, I'm not that stupid, Dad. That's Matthew Elms there, the parent of Hamilton crash victim Josh, who was just 15 years old. One of the young people, Bron, that died in that awful crash just the other day. And today we're looking at why are country people dying at four times the rate of city people when it comes to bad accidents on our regional roads? And how can we fix that? How can we change that? David's called from Warragul. David, thanks for joining us. Uh, no, thanks for taking my call. <clears throat> what did you me. want to share? Um, look, as I mentioned, to get online, I am the driver of a fatality. I survived a fatality. It, it, and I agree with everything that's been said, and I have empathy for everyone who's talking, but the, the issue, for, well, firstly, let me say, in all that time, 50 years ago, and so and so many years between, I've never been contacted to ask why. How did it happen to me? I think, you know, we talk about education, we talk about processes, and, and we're in a really incredibly IT age. It, 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 I call us, we live in a club. Anyone like me, 50 years ago or 50 days ago, we belong to a club because we know. People today, it, if it, it, they don't think it can happen to mm. them. And that's it. You know, it, at, at 10.44... I thought it couldn't happen to me. At 10.45, I knew it had. And I was a different person in the, in the blink of an eye. Mm. How do and we change that, yeah. David? Well, we change that. You know, the beginning to anything is start. You know, contact me, contact the club, ask people who was I before that accident. Yeah, I was a risk taker. 
You know, and I didn't know the penalty for risk and I didn't know the responsibility I had to the people in my motor vehicle. And, and you know, I can say that out loud because I've had a lot of help in that. And I hear those beautiful people who are going out into the schools and good on them and keep doing it because like that grandmother said, if you change one, well, you changed mm-hmm. one. But you won't change many because it won't happen to them. And it's certainly not a club that you want to be a part of, David. And you're so right. I mean, even Josh's dad, they all said they don't think it's going to happen to them. Nobody thinks it's going to happen to them. And it's looking at that combination of how do you change driver attitude. Thank you for calling and and thank you for having the courage because, I mean, it's conversations like today that help a little bit, you hope, because then maybe if nothing else, you go home and you speak to, to loved ones about it, you speak to young people about it. Yeah, and Jordan Marr is one of those many people who go into schools who's had a direct um, experience with road road trauma and goes into schools and, and shares his story and, and tries to create awareness and education. John was 42. He was in a crash that killed uh, a teenage girl, left him with life-threatening injuries. And then it was less than three years later, Rochelle and his youngest daughter, Carmen, was then killed in the road crash. Um, John's written a book about that called Carmen's Legacy. Um, and as I said, he goes into high schools and, and speaks to community groups as well. John, thanks for joining us. My, my great pleasure, Bronwyn. Thank you very much. I know you've and become yet- incredibly frustrated mm. at the continued deaths that we see on rural roads. You've started writing to federal and state ministers about it. What do you want done? Yes, Bronwyn, I've actually met with the federal and state ministers because last year I saw this coming and um, I've been watching what's been happening on our roads. I've been a um, road safety campaigner for 25 years. We lost Carmen 27 years ago, and um, I then started speaking at schools and corporates. I've spoken to more than 450,000 secondary college students in Australia and 300,000 corporates. And um, when we lost Carmen, that is the most... Um, horrific event that can happen to any family and I feel so sorry not just for the families in Hamilton but for the other four families that lost their um, family member over the weekend there were seven killed over the weekend Uh, so three have been forgotten because of what happened in Hamilton and for the families that have lost those other three those families are as shattered as everybody else and Um, This continues to happen on our country roads and we lost Carmen when she was 18 years and three months and what had happened, she had had her friend out on the Friday night like she had done hundreds of times before. We lived 25 uh, 25 minutes out of uh, Bendigo and um, what we didn't know at the time was the two girls had spoken in the bedroom or talked in the bedroom until uh, 4.30 in the morning. Um, Carmen had to take her best friend into McDonald's the next morning because she worked part-time of a weekend. She was a Year 12 student. Uh, and uh, on the way home, Carmen fell asleep at the wheel, just five kilometres from home. And that is one of the key things that continues to happen on our country roads because on country roads, we drive long distances. And prior to Carmen's death... I can tell you that I could not count the number of times that I drove when I was tired, when I was yawning, when I was having those long blinks that they call micro-sleeps, but I kept on going. And I'm the one who should have died in our family because I kept pushing that envelope and Carmen simply didn't have the experience. And I, I just urge everyone now, as soon as you yawn, understand that this is the precursor to you falling asleep at the wheel, pull over and for heaven's sake, have a power nap. And a power nap will save your life. It's incredible. I mean, John, yourself, Debbie, so many people have spoken about, you know, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago. These really awful, gut-wrenching conversations that we're having, we've been having them for so long. And you talk about the change that you want to see. What what are those changes? Because how can we one day hopefully not be having these conversations like this? Well, I heard a comment just before on your, your radio station. This is actually 2023. This isn't the dark ages. This is a technological society that we're in and things can be done and in front of me i have the infrastructure and transport minister's national road safety trans uh, strategy for 2021 2030 
they have $44 billion to spend on improving the roads and road safety. Now, they're putting up barriers, building roundabouts, filling in potholes, doing all of those things that really desperately need to be done on our roads. However, there is something very simple that must be done, and that is education. Our students must be educated, and I, I have proposed to them that, in, that every Year 10 student in Australia, of which there will be 330,000 next year in 2024, should be educated for one term. It will cost the government or cost this um, out of this $44 billion, $5.9 billion, uh, sorry, million dollars to put the, the education book into every student's hands and into the 25,000 Year 10 teachers' hands at a cost of $16.84 per person, hmm. per child. Now, I, I believe that every child is worth $16.84. Oh, John, uh, yes. Like, yeah. let's make this really simple. Why are these people sitting in government and sitting in the positions they're in? Because they were educated. They went through this system. They were smart enough to be put into these positions. Now, I had a, a very disappointing meeting with the minister uh, uh, two weeks ago at which uh, I got 15 minutes into the presentation and the alarm on her watch went off. So that's how important she felt my presentation minutes. was. 15 mm. minutes. And I'm telling you, two weeks later, she will, have, she will definitely know of this crash in Hamilton. And, and there's people like the, yourself, John, that have the solutions and they have the ideas and they want to get out there. And to do, you are just another incredible advocate that are mm. out there trying to do your bit to save, you know, even one life, Bron, as we heard. John mentioned tech and, you know, the capacity for technology to play a role here and, and that drowsiness. And I know of someone who's, you know, fairly new car has an alert that says, you know, you, you're driving like you're drowsy. It actually tells you when yes. it's picking up signs that you are a drowsy driver. This friend of mine said, I am, it goes off so often. I'm so often tired. I just ignore it now. And that just br breaks my heart. But I, I also think that is why tech can't be the only solution because ultimately we all make a human decision about how we respond to it and and that's the big yeah. challenge isn't it john thank you he's a road safety educator and author of carmen's legacy and we're talking about how long these tragedies stay with you paul in one turner south says my grandpa was a road toll victim in 1962 61 years ago i was five and lived far away i would have loved to have known my grandpa so that's just how long lasting it is. Ian Norton is a leading senior constable. He's from the small community of Rawson and he's the only police officer in town. There's only about 300 people that live there. Ian, when tragedies like <coughs> this occur, the first responders, the police, the ambos generally know the person that's been involved in that crash. What would, I mean, what would you do? I mean, you're probably pulling people over and asking them to slow down or to drive carefully. <coughs> what role do police officers play here? Yeah, and unfortunately, um, too many roles in these circumstances. And as you say, uh, I agree with your last caller that um, education is something that we really do need to uh, take on. Uh, we can fix country roads. Uh, I usually find once a road's fixed, it just means that people can drive faster on it. So the mm. tragedies that we've had in this area, from the last four people that have died in car accidents in this area, three were under 21. So one was a local and it was devastating mm. for the community. It was, and it still is, it was two years ago, but it, um, it's just been devastating, absolutely devastating. And in these small communities, um, People grow up together. Um, I've been here for 24 years. Uh, the young fellow that died that was the local, um, I'd known him since he was born. Um, they go to school. The, the kids go to school together in these areas. They grow up together. The families are friends. They spend you know, the majority of the weekends together. 
And unfortunately, when one dies, it, it impacts everybody. And it's just it's so detrimental. Ian, one thing that strikes me, which, you know, people in the in the city may not understand is that in a rural area if you've travelled say to a party or somewhere with friends and then it's time to come home oh, yes. that's your only way to get home perhaps with those people you know it becomes really difficult then doesn't it because do you get in the car where you think perhaps it's not safe what other option do you have and and I wonder you know, are there ways that we can, I don't know, have have a roster in a community where people say, this is the, the on-call number, call us if you ever feel unsafe and you need someone to come and get you. I, I wonder if it's time to think creatively mm. and look at other ways that we can provide support at that moment when that potentially fatal decision is made. It's designated drivers. We, we seem to have got away from the old designated yeah, driver right. plans mm. that we used to have. Um, I've got two young children, well, they're not young anymore, but um, when they were going through this stage, um, they knew and I told them and they knew and they did on several occasions, could ring me at any time of the night if they were in that circumstance where they felt unsafe about coming home with somebody and I would drive and pick them up. I'm inconvenient sometimes, and, and but you know, it's something that, as parents, you have to do. And fortunately, um, you know, uh, it just meant that I had an hour less sleep that night driving to pick them up. And but then you've got the kids, you know, you've got your you, kids you, now, you, don't you? You know in your own mind that you've um, you've done the right thing. Uh, in, in rural areas like this, uh, public transport is just not an option during the day, let alone at night. Neither there's a taxis no or Ubers. Yeah, there's no, no Uber. There's no taxi. No. I mean, I had a, no. I'd forgotten about those decisions that I had to make as a 16, 14-year-old. I actually just had a complete physical reaction, Bron, to what you're saying because we've, if you live in a country area, you've had to make that decision at some point. Ian, there's just finally, there's a text here that says every school should be talking about this issue this week while it's fresh in everyone's mind and it might save lives. So I'm presuming you'd agree with that. Uh, yes, I agree. Um, you know, I think we need children to be educated. I, I've said after many times, I've said to parents, you know, if you're looking for something to buy your child for an 18-year-old, if you're looking for an 18th birthday present, an advanced driving course, a four-wheel drive course, if they're interested in four-wheel driving, buy them that. Don't buy them the the angle fridge or or the whatever unfortunately these days kids grow up using um uh, xboxes and and nintendos and so forth and have uh, games where they're driving and they crash yeah, there's no consequences yeah. you, you just you just hit mm. the reset button on those does it make a mindset in the kids i don't know and i just think that you know if if our schools if we could also have driving instructions at schools to change um, the way people look at driving, you know, as, as, as was said before, just because the speed limit says 100 kilometres an hour does not mean that it's always safe to do 100 kilometres an hour. It's just not. Such great ideas and advice. Ian, thanks so much for your time and for the work that you do for your community as well. Rawson's lucky to have you. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. Thank you. Ian Norton, 23 years he's been the leading senior constable there at Rawson. Professor Lou Harms is the chair and head of social work at Melbourne University. And Lou, we've been talking all morning about the ongoing effects for individuals, for entire communities, the trauma, the PTSD that people feel even 50 years later. How do we support people through this? How, how do we support, say, the community of Hamilton at the moment? It's a really important question, Rochelle. Thanks for, for having me join the conversation. And really, I think that first step is to acknowledge the, the trauma and loss that is felt at such different points in time, over time, in such different ways. So hearing John and David's stories there, just in that blink of an eye, a community is changed as well as individuals and families. So for communities coming together, it's it's thinking around 
the collective trauma um, that's been experienced and thinking about how that collective trauma recovery process can, can really get uh, kick-started. Um, through some of the research we've done after bushfires, for example, um, really encouraging engagement with local community strengths. What does the community need and want and how does the community uh, lead all of that conversation and pathway that needs to happen? So schools are really key spaces um, as we're seeing um, with Hamilton area and, and others. Um, I think the other thing with community recovery is everyone is recovering or experiencing uh, their grief and their trauma in different ways. So there's not a community recovery as such. It's, it's about diverse needs. Um, no one size fits all here. But thinking about the ripple effects for people, their homes, households, families, and then at that community level, I think can create a really important system of support. Lou, as much as this is a really difficult time, and it always is, you know, post-road trauma and fatality, we've heard some mm-hmm. amazing stories this morning of people who have used that grief for good, mm-hmm. I guess, to try and educate mm-hmm. and, and save at least at least one, one life in the future. Is yeah. this the time for communities to come together and hold a, an evening where they say, what can we do, you know, to turn turn that grief and trauma into action that hopefully protects people into the future? I think or is that it too soon to do that? Yeah. It, it may be too soon and too raw. There may be some in the community who need and want to do that, and that's really important. I think that that too soon question is a really key one. Many people talk about post-traumatic growth as much as PTSD. So PTG, some people that we've researched have said in the minute of the incident, they made a decision that this event was going to change them in this particular way and and drove an advocacy and positive transformation out of that to to memorialise people they'd lost, all sorts of things. Others come to that years later um, and some don't come to that at all. But I I think hearing the advocacy, um, it's about how do we set that up as much as the focus on the, the deep distress that people are feeling. Deep distress, absolutely. You couldn't put it better, and it really is. I'm sorry we don't have much time, but Professor, thank you. Thanks for your insights today. Thank you. Professor Lou Harms is the Chair and Head of Social Work at Melbourne University. Just two texts, Bron, to sum up just a little bit of what we've gone through today. I mean, this it just simply says my brother was 15 years old. And another says, I grew up in a rural area where young people did die in accidents. Now I'm in Geelong, but I always have my phone by my bed, and I say to my kids, you ring me any time any time of the night that you need to get home. And worth mentioning, there is an organisation called Amber Community. They do road incident support and education. Um, A great resource if you're looking for support and information. Amber, so like the colour, A-M-B-E-R, community.org.au is the web address. To anyone that shared their story today and if this has raised any emotions in you, reach out for help, speak to people and thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for sharing your stories because whenever these huge fatalities happen and the, the traumatic events happen that we have seen, it raises so much. As we heard today, people are talking about incidents that happened 50 years ago. So look after yourselves and reach out for help. Lifeline is always there, 13 11 14. Bronwyn O'Shea, as always, joining us from ABC Wodonga. Thanks so much for today, Rochelle. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Take care of yourself. Drive safe. Speak to you tomorrow.